Welcome to the second episode of Seeking Truth. I'm Colin. And I'm Julian. And tonight we're going to dive into the topic of false gospels. The layout for this one is going to look a little different as tonight will be one episode of its own. We're going to discuss what a false gospel is, the characteristics of the true gospel, why we should defend against false gospels, how they distort the true gospel, and ultimately how we defend against those false gospels in a practical way. And then throughout the upcoming week, Julian and I are both going to record separate episodes in which we cover and go over some of these false gospels. Julian is going to be covering the prosperity gospel as well as the social justice gospel, and I'll be covering the moralistic, therapeutic deism false gospel and progressive Christianity. Let's start tonight out by handing it over to Julian. Julian, what is a false gospel? A good definition for a false gospel is any gospel that twists or distorts the biblical gospel to do anything other than glorifying God and centering it upon Jesus Christ. It takes biblical truth out of context, twists, or abandons it altogether so that it can push an agenda or viewpoint opposite of biblical truth. They point to anything other than Christ. He is the only thing that the true gospel can center upon. And a false gospel tries to center it upon something else and or use Christ to get that desired thing. With that being said, what is some characteristics of the true gospel that are necessary to know so that we can combat against false gospels? Right. So the true gospel, there are five of these, I think. Uh, the first one is that it's rooted in the character of God. The character of God is so vital to the true gospel because it is the gospel that is made up of God's characteristics. We cannot compromise on the characteristics of God at any point in our interpretation of Scripture, and the same applies to the gospel. So in episode 1, we talked about how the gospel is rooted in who God is. This can't be questioned, and for a lot of reasons, but I just want to mention a couple here. The first thing we have to establish is that God himself is unchanging. James 1.17 tells us there is no variation or change in God ever. We also see it in Malachi 3.6 when God himself says, I do not change. So we see that God is unchanging in his ways and characteristics. And so this is important to see because it means that his justice, his love, mercy, grace, wrath, righteousness, faithfulness, all of them have not changed in all of time. He was and is unchanging. The second thing we have to establish about God's character is that it cannot contradict itself. That is, that none of God's characteristics can cancel out another one. All throughout Scripture, we see it stated that God cannot lie. Numbers 23.19, Hebrews 6.18, and Titus 1 verse 2 are just a few that we can name. His unyielding commitment to truth brings assurance that his character is exactly as he says it is. And if we need it any clearer than that, we can look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, where it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God remains faithful, one of his key attributes, because he cannot deny himself. Justin Peters says something along the lines of, If you take away one of God's characteristics, you empty God of being God. He cannot go back on himself. This is so important to see because the gospel is a clear display 
of all the perfect pieces of God's character coming together. It's where his justice meets his wrath, his love meets his mercy, his grace and righteousness meet his wrath again. All of them meet in perfection. And so the gospel is rooted in the very character of God because it is all worked by God, through God, and for God. And so the gospel comes with the unchanging, perfect character of God. And this leads into our second characteristic of the true gospel, which is that it's backed by Scripture. Scripture is the breath of God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Scripture and the Bible, which are one and the same, we use those terms interchangeably, is not just another book written by man. Instead, it is breathed out by God himself, divinely relayed to man to pin down. So he has carefully and laboriously brought it to where it is today in his complete sovereignty. There isn't anything in there that shouldn't be or anything missing. So, our second point about Scripture. Scripture is inerrant and completely true as it agrees with the character of God, because he is its author. God's character cannot allow him to lie, so therefore he cannot lie in his word. This means that if something does not line up with what Scripture says about the gospel, then ultimately it does not line up with what God thinks about the true gospel, and therefore isn't the true gospel. And so the true gospel will never disagree or wander from what is said in Scripture. And so we look at the third. The true gospel is hinging upon the sufficiency of Christ and only Christ. The first part to see in this point is man's sinfulness. We have to understand where we start if we're ever going to see how Christ is sufficient. Romans 3.23 tells us that all of man has fallen short of the glory of God, that we all have sinned. And then Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Romans 5 tells us that sin and death have entered through one man, and grace has come through another. Ephesians 2, or Ephesians, tells us that we are completely dead in our trespasses and sins. The point of all of this is that man is completely sinful and cannot save himself. It's not a matter of works. Ephesians 2.9 says very clearly that it isn't by works, so that no one may boast. But instead, Christ is the only way. No other way can save. This is the major staple point of the true gospel. Nothing else can take the place of Jesus Christ as our Savior. There is so much support for this throughout all of Scripture, as we see in prophecies and in the teachings of the New Testament. Just to name a few, Romans 10.9, John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2.5, Acts 4.12, and my favorite, John 14.6, where Jesus says blatantly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the one who has purchased us. The one who has died for us so that we may be reconciled to God. It is not through our works. It's a gift directly from God. As Ephesians 2.8 and Romans 5.15 tell us, this is the truth that the true gospel hinges upon. The thing it's built upon. Number four, the true gospel is eternal in all 
ways. So the gospel was foreknown and planned. It was not some scrambling, last-minute, final-ditch effort attempt to save us by God. No. The gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has been planned and known from the very beginning. It was not a surprise, nor was it outside of God's power to control. Instead, it was always within the plan, knowledge, and control of God. I want to mention two passages that back this up. First is Acts 2, 22-23. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see clearly that Jesus' death was planned and foreknown by God to be enacted through the hands of lawless men. So that covers the planning part. But what about control? Was God in control at the crucifixion? The answer is yes, God was in control. And in John 10, 18, Jesus tells us so. Jesus is talking about his upcoming death and says this about his own life. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus, the entire time, was in charge of whether or not his life would be taken, and he attributed that to be a gift of the Father. So we see here, God planned, foreknew, it was in control of the gospel the entire time. The second way that the gospel is eternal is that it is worked out in the present day. And what I mean by that is that it is a legitimate historical event. The gospel of Jesus Christ was an actual event in history. And it's important to note that historians agree that Jesus Christ was not just some made-up character, but that the events of the gospel are legitimate history. This is so important because it shows that our gospel is also rooted in being a historical event, not just something of our imagination. The gospel is eternally secure. And so Romans 8 is one of the most famous passages of Scripture, and for good reason. It's one of the most encouraging because it perfectly highlights the eternal security of Christ and his love. It says in verses 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from Jesus Christ and His love. His salvation, the true gospel, is eternally secure. With all this in mind, the last characteristic of the true gospel is that it is for the glory of God alone. This may come as a shock, but the gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about Julian. The gospel is not about Colin. It never was. It was always about the glory of God. That was always God's business in the gospel to redeem sinners 
helplessly lost sinners for his glory. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God delivering his people, Israel, for the sake of his name. In all of Isaiah 38, he tells the Assyrians that they have really come against him, not just Israel, and that he will turn them back, and that he will defeat them for his glory. In verse 35, he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. God's primary goal in defending Jerusalem was so that his name would be honored and glorified and revered. And this is true in the New Testament as well. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11 tells us this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who is highly exalted and praised, the one who has the name above all names, the one who shall bend every knee and draw confession from the lips of every person. And in that, the Father is also glorified. And so false gospels seek to go against all of this. They seek their own glory, not the glory of God. And they seek to fulfill their own needs and feelings. How do they do this? How do they distort the true gospel? There's two different ways that false gospels distort the true gospel. There's false emphasis and false doctrine. The problem with a false gospel of emphasis is the message falls short or goes in a totally different direction of the true gospel. False doctrine is unorthodox and heretical teachings which offend God for the so-called benefit of humanity. They sacrifice truth for a desired goal. So why is it important to discuss false gospels? So first and foremost, Philippians 1.7, Paul says, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. So, we're just going to go over these points very quickly here. Uh, first and foremost, God's glory is at stake here. False gospels don't seek to glorify God, but instead seek to glorify man and downplay the glory of God. They don't want people to turn to Christ, but would rather them turn to fellow man and glorify and benefit him. And we see this, that it was the same in the garden. What did Satan want to do? He wanted to rob God of the glory and make himself like God. And so we see that in false gospels, that it's God's glory that is at stake here, and we must be adamant about defending the true gospel that truly glorifies God. Second, eternal souls are also at stake here, not only mine, but those who are around me. When we stray from the true gospel, we ultimately stray from the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the one thing that can truly save man. False gospels don't tell you that. They lead you to hope in something else, something lesser, and that can ultimately lead people away from salvation and into hell. Oftentimes, false gospels will lead you to trust in material things or finite and temporary things. And so, it's no mystery that Scripture calls us to be on defense against these false gospels, to be on watch against them. And so I want to point to two passages that tell us right out of the gates that we need to be on watch. Acts 20, verses 28 through 30 
says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought in his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort truth in order to draw disciples after them. The second passage I want to point to here is Galatians 1, 6-8, which says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This gospel, this true gospel, is so important that Paul says, if anyone else preaches a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, if anyone says anything different, even myself, let him be accursed. It's so serious because if I abandon the true gospel, then I abandon God and Christ. And so we must be on the defense against false gospels so that we remain faithful and true to what Christ has called us in. So that we share the true gospel with those around us. One that leads them to the Jesus Christ who can actually save. The one who truly forgives sin. The one who is truly worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. The true gospel is a precious and sacred thing. Something to be protected, valued, and shared, but never changed. That leads us into the defense against false gospels. So, with that being said, Julian, how do we defend ourselves against false gospels? There's two different ways we want to approach defense against false gospels, and that's with internal factors and external factors. There's three internal factors that I want to cover. The first one is correct thinking. Correct thinking starts in Scripture and flows from it by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, keeping in mind the holiness and character of God. We should never elevate our understanding of certain concepts or ideologies above the word of God or the glory of God. Isaiah 48 says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word is eternally true. Mm. What we think isn't. <laughs> Amen to that. Our opinions and concepts of truth consistently change, but God's never has. So it should be rooted in scripture the second is we should be rooted in prayer again scripture and sound teaching to consistently have an orthodox or true view of scripture we need to abide in the presence of god through the reading of his word we need to pray consistently trying our best to pray without ceasing for the submission of our own wills to the will of god and we need to listen to sound preaching of god's word discerning whether the teaching honors God, draws its conclusions from his word, and points to Jesus Christ, or, if the teaching pleases my flesh, draws its conclusions from the opinions of man, and points me to self, how we understand God's word should be pointing us to God, how we honor him. 
and it should be pointing us to Jesus Christ, not the flesh, self, or opinions of man. The third way that we can internally defend against false gospels is that we should strive for continual repentance. We need to consistently check the intentions of our heart and even our understandings in our minds to make sure that they align and submit to the truth of God and His Word. When we are seeking our own pleasure and glory above God's will and glory, we need to turn away from that and seek His truth. This involves sacrificing one's pride for the glory of God and admitting that we are not perfect and do not have everything together and that we are reliant upon the person of Christ for salvation. We're reliant upon the Holy Spirit for our sanctification. These are the internal factors. What are some external factors that can help us defend against false gospels? So the first thing to keep ourselves on guard against false gospels externally is to be plugged in at a local church that preaches the true word of God. When you are involved in a local church, you are involved in something called discipleship. That is, you have mentors, you have small groups, and you have large groups. This fosters accountability and sound teaching among a group of people and allows you to grow deep with them and grow deeper in your walk with Christ. And so this keeps us accountable to the true word of God. If you want your life to be all about something, you immerse yourself in it. Musicians immerse themselves in music. Artists immerse their whole life into art and its culture. And it's no different for the church. If we want our lives to be all about the gospel, then we need to be immersed in it. And how do we do this? We plug into a local church that teaches the true gospel because the church is to equip the saints for ministry, for building up the saints, and to prepare us to speak the truth in love so that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine that is talking about false doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so we're not to be carried away by all of that, and that's the church's primary objective that we find in Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Christian, the church exists to prepare us to stand strong against the ideals of the world. It exists to guide us, to teach us, and to lead us in speaking the true gospel of Jesus Christ for God's glory. This is the first external way to combat false gospels. The second is to share the true gospel in our own lives. Our lives are to be set upon sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we look at Matthew 28, 19, we find the great commission that Christ gives his disciples. And by the way, every Christian is a disciple of Christ. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, our Christian lives, don't stop at salvation. Instead, they continue on in this constant renewal of faith and this constant discipleship. And that's how we influence each other is through that, through teaching and encouragement. And so, for our lives to not be swayed by false gospels, we have to constantly be immersing ourselves, yes, but also proclaiming it to those around us and ourselves. It has to be the defining mark of our life. Paul's entire Christian life was dedicated to sharing the gospel and building up the church. This is how we're to be. 
consumed with love for Christ and His glory. It's really hard for false gospels to sneak in in your own life and those around you when you were always sharing the true gospel. Number three, when we encounter false teachings and false gospels, we confront them in a biblical way. As we said at the beginning, the defense of Jesus' gospel is insanely important. And so we cannot be scared to go against false teaching when it shows its head. However, we must do it in a biblical way, a way that is true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this means a couple of different things. First, we don't go out seeking confrontation for our own pride. We defend the true gospel the best we can in the area that we are when false gospels rear their head. We don't back down. We live unashamedly for the gospel of Christ, as Romans 1.6 says. Second, when we do have to confront false teachings and false gospels, we should strive to do so in the biblical format, in love and in gentleness, as Galatians 6.1 says. So what does biblical confrontation look like? Well, it's outlined in Matthew 18.15-20 and Titus 3.9-11. These both tell us that a person gets two warnings. It all begins with a one-on-one -on -one meeting between two brothers in Christ. In this, they would discuss what the issue or sin is. And this is where another distinction comes into play that I think is important. Is the issue on minor doctrines, such as drinking, divorce, or living with somebody before marriage, or is it on something more important, such as salvific doctrines, that is, those beliefs having to do with salvation itself. And so the process is the same for each one. However, the salvific doctrines carry a different weight to them because of the impact it could have on those that the person is sharing that false gospel with. It can be detrimental to what other people believe is the gospel. So, if your brother refuses to listen in private, and when I say brother, I mean brother or sister. It's just the biblical term for uh, sibling in Christ. But if your brother refuses to listen in private, then you take one or two with you and agree upon the evidence against them that has been established and confront them again. If they still refuse to listen, then it becomes public, going before the church. This process is the same for false gospels among Christians. Our goal in it, though, should never be to humiliate the person but draw them to Christ and the true gospel. However, if they refuse to listen, if they refuse to see how they are straying from Christ, especially in beliefs of salvation, then there is that aspect of public confession and public confrontation. This public confession of their sin or false teaching is ultimately done to warn them in hopes they will come back around but also to guard our churches and communities against false gospels by correcting them. Therefore, with all that we have said in mind, we're going to wrap up, and we urge you to examine what you believe and make sure that it is rooted in the eternal word of God that stands forever. Defend yourself against false gospels, and make sure your understanding of the gospel is rooted in God's revelation of Jesus Christ. In all of this, we seek to educate and defend the gospel so that Christ is glorified and regarded as the only Savior. If you have any questions about false gospels, 
or about the true gospel of Jesus Christ, feel free to reach out to us through our Instagram and Twitter, which is at Gospel Truth Society, or shoot us an email, which is gospeltruthsociety at gmail.com. Remember, we're going to be releasing two more episodes in this upcoming week in which we tackle certain false gospels head on. So, thank you for tuning in. I'm Colin. And I'm Julian. Signing off.